Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. All right, so good morning, and if we look to uh, our time in the ministry of the Word today, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We are going to be um, looking at uh, chapter 7 to 12, and uh, we're not going to cover it all this week. I initially had thought we would, but uh, looking at it, uh, there's just there's just so much here, and uh, I am struggling to figure out what to include and what not to include, um, and I, I think there's a natural break that happens at the end of verse 7 of chapter 9, so we'll go up to that, and we'll pick up the second section next Sunday. Now, last week, we looked at chapter 6, and we began to unpack the, f- the first main section of the body of the book. We said in chapters 1 to 5 are function in a sense like a preface. Chapter 6 is the, is the beginning of the main body of this book. And as Isaiah launches off here in chapter 6, um, we are pointed out that there lies the, pr- we pointed out that there lies the promise of a new beginning. The darkness of chapter 5 transitions into this new beginning hope in chapter 6 through 12. And, and those chapters then form the next big um, block of material in this book. They form a complete unit of thought with a clear and discernible theme and a clear and discernible structure to them. And chapter 6 in particular records God's confrontation, God's cleansing, and God's um, commission of Isaiah for ministry, which tell us, we said again and again, as we looked at all three of those sections, they tell us about the, the reality that death does not have the final word, that there is always, always hope for God to act, even when it seems like the lights have all but gone out. Isaiah is saying, as he describes in this confrontation with the holiness of God and this cleansing that happens in verses 6 and 7, and the commissioning that follows in verses 8 to 13, He is saying that there is always hope for divine action. And as he's carried along by the Spirit, Isaiah is essentially confirming for us that what the Holy One of Israel has done for me, he says, and in me, he can do for you and in you. Death does not have the final word. God is going to accomplish salvation through the perfect son of David. And... uh, But what will take place in Israel and Judah before that salvation is realized and what God's salvation will actually look like once it arrives, that is what he's going to deal with in chapters 7 to 12. And that's what we are coming to this morning. As we launch into this next section in chapter 7, we come to Isaiah uh, and he is facing the situation that is before him uh, straight on. He is going to provide both sobering diagnosis of their present situation as he sees it in Judah, and at the same time, he presents this glorious vision of the future. And standing between kind of what is and what is to come, in between that is this promise of Emmanuel, God with us, who will bring salvation not just to Israel or Judah, but to the nations. And that's the glory of these chapters. And though we're not exactly told how until later on in chapters 40 to 55 through this means of atonement, that's not clear to us till later. Isaiah does make clear that God's answer to the problem of sin is going to be resolved in the greater and more perfect son of David. But that resolution of the curse will not take place before 
until God's purifying judgment purges ungodliness and unrighteousness and rebellion in Judah and Israel. Now, chapter 7 to 12, which are sometimes referred to by commentators, theologians, as the book of Emmanuel, are arranged in a somewhat parallel format. So, in some ways, you could think of them like a song, right? In the sense that a song usually has a central theme to it, some topic, love, or whatever, the gospel, if it's a Christian song. A song has a central theme, but it's going to have multiple verses and that is what we see going on here. They share a similar, a song has a similar theme, similar structure, and a rhythm and a melody to it, making it a song. That's what makes it one song. And that is essentially what we're seeing in chapter 7 to 12. There's a verse in, this cha- in these chapters for Judah, the southern tribes, which is where Isaiah is primarily ministering. And we'll see that in chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 7. But there's also a verse for Israel, meaning the northern tribes that have since been broken off, um, and that will be unpacked for us next Sunday in chapter 9, verse 8, to chapter 11, verse 16, or the end of chapter 11. But they both, both of these sections share a similar structure, a similar theme, and a similar uh, uh, rhythm and melody to them, to use the analogy of a song. And the shape of each verse, the verse that's um, addressed to Judah, and then later on the verse that's addressed to Israel, we can break that down into four parts. And each one, it's, it's amazing how there's such organization, and that's why we block these chapters together. You can break down each of these two verses, one to Judah, one to Israel, along four lines. Decision, rejection, remnant, and hope. That's the outline, and that's going to be the outline next week, too. You're going to, we're going to see the decision, the moment of decision. We're going to see uh, their rejection. We will see a remnant, a discussion of a remnant, and hope. So that's kind of our roadmap for where we're going this morning. And what all of those realities underscore is this truth that was, be, that was laid out in chapter 6, that death does not have the last word, that what God has done for and in Isaiah, he will do in and for his people. And so that, that is what we're going to see this morning. Now we begin in chapter 7, verse 1, with uh, the, the first part of this verse for Judah, and that is decision. Decision is kind of the first heading of our text. Now from 2 Samuel 7 onward, the dominating promise from God that shaped the life of Israel has been this promise of the Davidic covenant. It is a massively important portion of scripture, and that's why we read it this morning. God promised David that he would raise up one of his descendants after him, and that God would establish the throne of that descendant forever, eternally. And uh, so the expectation was firmly planted in the hearts of the people that a future son of David who would also be the son of God, this anointed one, this Messiah. That's what the term Messiah means, the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. This seed of the woman promised back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 would crush the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, and ultimately reverse the curse of sin. And so the faithful in Israel, in every generation, that was their continual expectation and hope. They, what, but what they experienced on the ground was very different. David 
and Solomon were sort of a high watermark in the life of Israel. And from that point on, it just continues to go downhill. What they experienced year after year, decade after decade, literally century after century was increasingly wicked and incompetent leadership. And it was a failure after failure, loser after loser. Then the kingdom divides and it just gets worse. There are the occasional reformers in the southern tribes, but the trajectory was obvious to anyone who was paying attention. The house of David was a dynasty that appeared to be swirling the drain. And, uh, and Ahaz, who is the king at this time, is uh, the third king to take the throne during the time of Isaiah's ministry. And uh, remember, Uzziah is the one who marks the beginning of his, um, of his prophetic ministry with his death. But then Jotham, his son, reigns. And now at this point in chapter 7, Ahaz is king. And he doesn't do anything to reverse the curse. Uh, he is not trending in the opposite direction. Uh, in fact, 2 Kings chapter 16 tells us Ahaz was 20 years old when he came, when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. So we see he is a wicked king who continues to uh, indulge his wickedness and idolatry. And so that is the backdrop that we're introduced to here in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Um, so I just want to read that opening verse. It says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, Rezin or Rezin, the king of Aram, which is just Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, which is just a reference to the northern tribes, his head, I mean, his heart and his hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So as we begin in chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2, you have yet another wicked king reigning on the throne. You have Judah being threatened by its neighbors in the north, Israel and Aram, which is just more or less Syria. Okay, So I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. You have Israel and Syria in the north, and you also have a, a rising imperialistic adversary that will be introduced to later in Assyria that is starting to begin to wake up and cause rumblings. And Isaiah records for us that this confederation of states, uh, Israel and Syria, which had already wreaked havoc on Judah, and you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 28, they'd already caused a lot of trouble. They have decided, as we see in verses 1 and 2 here, to wage war against Judah, and, to, and that provokes fear. It provokes fear in Ahaz, and it provokes fear amongst many of the people. So at this point, Judah is a nation that is being kind of picked over bit by bit. They, they are slowly kind of declining, and it just gets harder and, and worse. They are growing weaker, they are more vulnerable, and there's very, very little for them to be hopeful about at this point. These are dark days, and that's why chapter 5 ends with darkness. These are dark days. And the latest threat that is upon them has struck fear in the hearts 
of the people. And so at a certain point, even the faithful in Israel and Judah have to start to wonder, is this promise of God's kingdom and his righteousness, is that ever going to be realized? Is that ever going to happen? And that is one of the central issues of this whole section. Chapters 7 to 12 addresses this issue. And that's when God directs Isaiah and his son, his son Sheer Jashub, to go out and to meet Ahaz and to deliver, and to deliver him a message in verse 3. He says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram, Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make it for ourselves, make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Like this is the situation. So Isaiah is called to deliver a message that is as clear and as straightforward as uh, the uh, highway in the desert. There is, he is telling them, there is no reason to be fearful, and there is no reason for them to be worked up. That is the message. You know, in World War II, I think in, U, in the UK, when right as they were preparing to be uh, bombed, they, they had a poster. We've, it's been turned into a meme over the years, but it says, it says keep calm and carry on. That was, that was, that's the message that Isaiah has for Ahaz and for the people. Keep calm and carry on. These two kings, Rezin, who is the king in Syria of Damascus, and Pekah is his name, is the king of Israel in the north. They had planned to attack Judah. They intended to conquer Judah, and they wanted to establish in Ahaz's place, who was God's king, David's descendant, a puppet king who would do their bidding. That was what they wanted. And God, through the mouth of the prophet, tells Ahaz, that is not going to happen. That is not going to happen. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it, will no longer, it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. This is a definitive statement by the Lord through the mouth of Isaiah. And he says, whatever they have planned to do, I will not allow that to come to pass. There's some, maybe some practical implications just as we think about this, these opening verses. First, we need to remember that God is the sovereign Lord of history. I mean, I think that's one of the key takeaways from this whole section, especially these opening verses. He reiterates here that the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. In other words, that's the capital city. And what's implied in that kind of somewhat confusing and cryptic statement is that's how it's going to stay. In other words, they'll never have Jerusalem as their capital. The head of Aram will still be the head of Aram. The head of, of Israel will still be Samaria. That's not going to change. 
And it just reminds me of what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, that it is God who changes the times and the epochs. It is God who removes kings and establishes kings. And it is God who gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Like that is the reality. And even though God is actually directing the Lord's sovereign hand, is directing these attacks against Judah. I mean, he actually explains them in 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 28, which are parallel accounts. It says God is directing them to do this against Judah. But, he's held, but through Isaiah, he communicates that I will not allow the extent of their wicked plans to be accomplished. It will not happen as they have purposed. As we're going to see later on in chapters 40 to 48 of Isaiah, God doesn't just know the future. He directs the future exactly the way he has decreed. And what's unstated, and should be plain, but it's, it's unstated, is that if God put resin on the throne in Syria, and God has put Pekah on the throne in Israel, then the question needs to be asked to Ahaz, who put you on the throne in Judah? And if you're going to, and the obvious answer is, it is God. And if you, and God says, if I say you're going to stay on the throne, you will stay on the throne. And that's something we need to understand as well. God is not on the, God is, excuse me, is still on the throne establishing leaders even today. His purposes for um, the nations have not changed. He is still establishing leaders. He is still removing leaders of the nations. And we as his people can trust him with the outcomes of those changes, those machinations as being from the hand of God and not let our hearts become like, like Judah's hearts and Ahaz's hearts that were shaking as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. That's the, that's the message that's being communicated here. Our Heavenly Father sits on the throne and he knows what is best for us. So that's one implication. A second implication, I think, that comes out of these opening verses is that trusting in mere men and the alliances that they form gains God's people nothing. It, it accomplishes nothing in the grand scheme of things. Just as Israel, trusting in her alliance and trusted in her alliance with Syria, will soon find out that the end result of all that will be her destruction and exile. In the same way, Judah will find out that putting their trust in Assyria is going to result in their demise as well. The last part of verse 9 is vital to understanding practically the whole, the whole of chapters 9 to 12. Look at the end of verse 9. He, he says, these two kings are going to stay right where they are. And then he ends with this. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Or it's a play on words. We don't, I don't think the major translations do a great job of picking up the play on words. He says, stand, basically he's saying, stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. That's the, 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 the root of both of those words is the same. Um, one commentator I thought had an interesting uh, kind of uh, summary. It's trust or bust. That's essentially what the end of verse 9 is saying. Isaiah is as blunt as he is profound. This, and, and this, so this is not just a message to Ahaz. It's a warning message to all of God's people. You and I have two choices. Either show faith toward God, trusting in his word and his promises, 
or place your trust in human policies and human efforts in politics and alliances and all that. Either you will trust the God's revealed word and his promises, and he'll establish and sustain you, or you can do what Israel and Judah did, and you can grab the, try anyway, to grab the reins from God and chase after others and ally yourselves with wicked men, thinking that that is how you're going to salvage the situation. And in the end result, that will be your downfall. That's the picture. Um, I think it was the Greek, ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus who said, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river and he is not the same man. And the point is that history doesn't repeat itself exactly, but many of the same patterns do tend to repeat themselves. And that is what we need to understand because God and men are still the same. God is who he is and we in our hearts and our fickleness are still the same. And so we must understand that trusting in mere men, like we learned in chapter five, our chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter three, uh, end of chapter two, where he says, stop trusting in men. We are reminded of that here. And so all that is going on here. Ahaz has reached, essentially, as he comes to chapter uh, 7, verse 9, or 10, he's come to a point of decision. He's forced to make a choice. Will he trust God and be established, or will he look to human wisdom and human policies and follow the fate of Israel in the north? And so Ahaz is instructed by God through the word of Isaiah to tell Ahaz to ask for a sign. So look at verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. Now this word for a sign can refer to two different kinds of divine signs. The first is a sign that convinces a person in the immediate present to move forward in a particular way. We see an example of this in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 8, where Moses is hesitant and he's trying to convince the signs that he gives them were, were for Moses to convince him to go to Pharaoh and ask him for him to release his people. So it's a sign that is meant to convince in the immediate present. There's a second way that this word sign can, uh, can be spoken of, and that refers to a future event that comes to pass some point down the road, and when that happens, it becomes proof positive that God has been at work all along. Again, we see an example of this in Exodus 3, where God tells Moses that the people will worship him later on at Mount Sinai. In chapter 3, verse 12, and when that happens, then it will prove that God was the one who redeemed them and God was the one who orchestrated the events that brought them out of Egypt. So there's two different ways that a sign can be given. This offer of a sign in verse 11 that he says, ask God for a sign, is the first use of this term, just contextually. God is saying, you pick the sign. It's like, pick a sign, any sign, right? Whatever you want, it can be something as grand as making the sun stand still like he does in, in numbers, or it could be something, you know, whatever it is. He says, you ask, I will do it to strengthen your hand to trust me that Israel and Syria will not overrun you. Just ask. But notice Ahaz's response in verse 12. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now you say, Wow. That sounds so spiritual. 
That sounds so spiritual. But actually what it reveals is a heart of unbelief. We need to understand this is a heart of unbelief. To accept God's offer is not to put him to the test because God has said, commanded him, make, make, me, a, make me an offer, I'll do it. Refusing to accept his offer, that is putting the Lord to the test. And Ahaz refuses here to ask for a sign because doing so would then compel him to trust God and sit tight. And that's not what he wants to do. In fact, he's already decided not to trust God, but has instead run to Assyria to help them against Israel and Syria in the north. And we'll see him do that shortly. If you're reading the historical accounts, you'll see that in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 7. He basically whistles for Assyria to come and ally themselves with him to help. And of course, the writer of Kings makes clear that that was a huge mistake. Ahaz, here in verse 12, is doing Satan's bidding by quoting scripture, distorting scripture for his own purposes, and dressing up his rebellion in religious clothing. And so that's why Isaiah responds the way he does in verse 13. He says, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will also try the patience of my God as well? Ahaz has refused to trust God. He's refused again now to ask for a sign. He's at the point of decision and he has made the wrong choice. He has chosen to trust in human policies and um, in human maneuverings and politics and earthly wisdom to get what he thinks he needs. And so God says, I'm no longer going to give you a sign to open the door of faith. Instead, I'm going to give you a sign as a demonstration of my displeasure for your absence of faith. But like all of God's judgments, they are tempered with salvation blessings. God's judgments, remember, are not just punitive. God's judgments are meant to purify. They are meant to turn the people back. And that's what you see in the famous verse that we all know in verse 14. Therefore, this is a word of judgment. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't ask for a sign. Now I'm going to give you a sign. What is this sign? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now here, the word for a sign is being used in the second sense. God is going to do something in the future. And when it happens, then all of God's people will know that it was God who was at work all along. And God's sign, we know, is this wonderful promise concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Gospels tells us fulfills this word. Mary who is a virgin, supernaturally conceives of a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that child that she gives birth to is none other than the Word become flesh. Truly man, having an earthly mother, but because he has no earthly father, he is truly God. And that is what is promised here in verse 14. And so what are we to make of verses 15 and 16? What is he talking about there? He goes on to add, he, this child will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. 
Curds and honey, in verse 15, are a sign of God's judgment on the land. This is famine food. This is what you eat when you can't cultivate anything else. These verses, verses 15 and verse 16, simply assert that before this messianic child comes to maturity in the future, the demise of Israel and Judah will have taken place and the exile will be the result. That's what he's telling them there, which is exactly how things unfolded. As we learn later, Assyria comes not long after this and captures the northern tribes in 722 and hauls them off. Then later on, Babylon comes back and finishes the job in Judah. And from that point on, David's descendants only reign as puppet kings under foreign occupation from that point forward. And so by the time Jesus comes, is born, the heir to David's throne is an anonymous carpenter in Nazareth. By the time that Jesus comes, he inherits a non-existent crown and nothing more than the faint memory of a kingdom. And Isaiah hangs that reality on Ahaz's unbelief. And Isaiah wants us to connect those dots. He wants us to see the connection between Ahaz's unbelief and the state of Israel and Judah. Proverbs 8 verse 36 says, those who hate divine wisdom love death. And that's exactly what Judah reaped on account of Ahaz's choice to live by human policies and earthly wisdom Rather than God's promises, they reaped what they sowed. Which leads us to the second main point. We've seen this, this moment of decision, this opportunity of decision. As we look to this song for Judah, it moves from decision, secondly, to rejection. And we see that in chapter 7, verse 18, through chapter 8, verse 8. Because Ahaz and the people have rejected God's word and his promises, they will now reap what they have sown. And we see him explain that in verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days as has never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. That's looking back to when, when the tribes uh, broke off, when Israel was fractured in 1 Kings 12. And he says, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle on the steep ravines and on the ledges of the cliffs and on the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates. That is the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. This is a picture of utter humiliation at the hands of the Assyrians. In that day, a man will keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. And because of the abundance of milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. In other words, there's not going to be many people left. Everyone who's left, the few that are left, they're going to be eating famine food. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because of all the land being briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. That's curse language there. You see that? Briars and thorns. But they will become a place of pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. So the Garden of Eden becomes a desolate wasteland. That's the picture. 
Assyria, the very nation that they thought was going to save them, that they whistled for to say, come help us. He says, they are going to come as an instrument in my hands to humiliate you and to judge you. And God wants them to know that it's his doing. He makes it plain. He's the sovereign one laying waste to their land and driving them away into exile. Because Ahaz and the people have rejected the Lord, he has a message for them. And that message comes, it involves a bulletin and a baby. Really proud of that alliteration. <laughs> a bulletin and a baby in, verse, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for, for a testimony, Uriah and Zechariah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him, Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, mother, my, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. God tells Isaiah to take a large tablet of some kind and post a bulletin on it. And then what does it say? It basically literally says, speedy, spoil, hasty, pray. One commentator, again, says, quick pickings, easy pray. That's what you're going to become. Assyria is going to come, he says, like a freight train. And when they come, they're going to make short work of everything. And God confirms this heavenly bulletin by the mouth of two witnesses, this man Uriah and Zechariah, who are, we learn in the uh, Kings and Chronicles, were party to Ahaz's idolatry. And then, along with this bulletin, he's going to give Isaiah a child. And his wife conceives and gives birth to a son who will be a living, breathing witness that God's judgment is going to come swiftly and God's judgment will be comprehensive. Every time they see that kid and say his name, they're going to think, God's judgment. God has judged us. And again, this child would be a demonstration to the king and the people that God was the workman swinging the axe of the Assyrian occupation that would clear the forest floor. Why is God doing this? Why does he do this? Verses 5 to 8 tell us. He says, Inasmuch as this people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks, and then it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land. The reality is that God's people really weren't interested in submitting to or following the Lord or his word. God's king, Ahaz, he lacks popular support. Do you see that there in verse 6? They, people rejoiced in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, which is to say that God's kingdom is itself viewed with contempt because Ahaz is David's descendant. He is the one who stands for, the, for God and for his purposes and the law. And they are rejecting that. And some of them are sympathetic to these foreign occupiers, Rezin and Pekah, in a baffling act of treachery. They're, they're almost cheering 
the enemy on, hoping that he will do something to get rid of Ahaz. But God says, okay, if you want to reject me and my gently flowing waters such as they are through Ahaz, and he's nothing special and the kingdom's nothing special, but if you're going to reject that, he says, I'm going to bring to you something new. I'm going to bring the mighty flood of the Assyrians and you'll be up to your neck in it. That's the picture. I think this is a good reminder for us, just moving out to the level of abstraction of principle here, that we can sometimes view the imperfection of God's servants and the limitations of God's purposes in a sin-cursed world, right? They they can only be so much. We can view those things with such contempt that the pendulum swings the opposite direction we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to be careful. We can make the perfect the enemy of the good. And we can fail to understand that there is no perfect church. There is no perfect leaders. There are no perfect leaders. There is no perfect form of government. There is no perfect economic system. There are no perfect husbands. There are no perfect wives. And fill in the blank. There's no perfect whatever. And so we can lurch from God's design or God's providential circumstances and clamor faithlessly for something else that will ultimately ruin us. When we really need to do what God wants, which is to ask him, what God asks of us, which is to trust him and to look to him and live daily on every word that proceeds from his mouth. We we, we become so discontent that things are not perfect that we actually embrace what will destroy us. And that's what Judah did. But in the end, in the end, Isaiah holds out a word of hope. The waters will only come up to their necks. Do you notice that? It doesn't go over their heads. They can still breathe. It is Emmanuel's land at the end there in verse 8. It's God's land, and he will not let it be commandeered by someone else. And so we see decision. The song, uh, in this song, we see decision. We see rejection. Thirdly, we see a remnant, a remnant. The point of view shifts in verse 9. God has a remnant, and through the wa- and though, excuse me, the water of Assyria uh, and later Babylon when they come, while those waters will rise up and sweep the people away, God's not overlooking those countries' wickedness. And so we see him speaking to the, addressing the godless nations in verse 9 and 9 in verse 10. He, he's warning them that, yes, you're going to do my bidding, but because your purposes are against me, in the end, I will deal with you as well. And that's what we see in verse 9. He says, Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. He's saying, You can plan, you can scheme, you can do whatever you want, but it will not ultimately prevail because I'm God and I pull the strings. I direct things the way I want. And so what Isaiah is saying here, what he sees with a clear eye is that God's future salvation rests in the hearts of select individual believers within that community, within that nation, rather than the nation as a whole. 
and what characterizes the remnant in contrast to the people of Judah and Ahaz is they profess allegiance to the Lord. They trust in the Lord. The remnant are those who live by faith in the promises of God. And that's what you see him explain in verses 11 to 18. For thus, says the, Lord, for thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and, inst- and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. This is Isaiah speaking. For the Lord, God told him not to walk in the way of this people, this unbelieving people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel... He'll be a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. So this is what will happen to Israel. But then in verse 16, he says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I, this is, this is Isaiah speaking, and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Zion. God's remnant, unlike Ahaz in the house of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they don't fear what the world fears. Nor do they get swept up in the conspiratorial thinking and turn against their brothers and sisters like Isaiah was experiencing, right? They simply trust in the unshakable word of God. And instead, uh, he, he describes them in verse um, 16 as God's, Yahweh's disciples. It's the first time that term is used there in the book. And they are those who wait for the Lord, the remnant. They look eagerly for God. This group who will bind the testimony and seal the Lord's instruction upon their heart, they are the prophet and his spiritual children. They are the ones that hold fast to the word and preserve it for future generations. So we, um, Philip even alluded to it this morning in our scripture reading as the call to worship. Peter quotes these verses. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, quotes this section of text. And both of them quote this, spe- this section of text to speak about Christ and his people. God's true children, those who were born of their heavenly father, are those who live by the promises of God, by faith, and they are not swayed, they are not deluded by the siren song of the world, trusting in human policies and alliances and earthly wisdom. Because those things, are, in the end, are a false hope. And that's why verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, look to God's word. If they do not speak according to his word, if that's not en- enough for you, it is because those individuals who reject that word have no light, no dawn. Those who continue to despise God's word only reap more hopelessness, disappointment, anguish, 
and heartache. And that's how you see it end there in verse 21. These, re- these who reject God and his word, who live by their own efforts and their own wisdom, they will pass through the land, he says, hard-pressed, famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will become not repentant, but he says enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Such is the contrast between the remnant and the masses. Isaiah moves from the darkness of Judah's present situation. He ends with the glorious vision and hope for the future in chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 7. So we've seen decision, rejection, remnant, lastly, hope. Hope. A day lies ahead when God's people will see the coming glory of the promised son of David. There is a day coming. And this unique child, this virgin-born child that God told Ahaz would arise out of the darkness and shine like the sun will be a sign, not just to Judah, but to the whole world, that God has orchestrated the salvation of Israel and the nations. Remember, there's the sign in a future sense. So when it happened, everyone would look back and say, this was God's doing. And the first land, you see that in chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. These were the, these were the nations in the north, the tribes in the north, in Israel. Remember, they're the first ones to get hauled away. So the ones who experienced the darkness first, will be the first to see the light. And that's exactly what happened, right? We see that in the Gospels. But later on, he shall make it glorious, God will, by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This uh, contrast, this parallelism of gladness of harvest, gladness of spoil speaks of the sphere of creation and the sphere of history. The, 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 The heart of this is to point out that there is reconciliation, there is restoration, there is peace with God when his anointed one reigns upon the earth. And in this future day, the picture is unspeakable joy will hold court and will never, ever let go. Why? I mean, why why is there such joy? Well, he lists three reasons in 4, 5, and 6. You'll notice, at least in the NAS, there's a four, there's a four, there's a four. Those are, those are explanatory conjunctions. They're meant to point out that this is the reason, these are the, this is the explanation as to why there's such joy. First, verse four, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. In other words, God is going to lift, when that is accomplished, he lifts burdens, both spiritual and physical. Secondly, 
Verse 5, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Again, this is a picture of universal peace. There's no more war. There's no need for war. There is peace between the nations. There is peace between God and men. And lastly, this is the most important one. There is joy for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. This child who was promised the greater, more perfect son of David will come and be born in fulfillment of God's promises to David through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. And in contrast to the fickle and faithless and faltering house of David will come a child, an anointed one, who will reign supreme forever and ever. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So taken together, these terms that we're so familiar with, we always read these verses at Christmas time. These terms, they, they tell us about this anointed one. He is one who instructs with perfect divine wisdom. That's why he's called the wonderful counselor. He is one who will act powerfully as mighty God. He's God in human flesh. He will care for and love his children everlastingly. That's why he's called the eternal father. And he is the one in whose presence will usher in eternal peace and blessing. That's why he's called the prince, the administrator of peace. This is none other, the picture here is none other than the supremacy, absolute supremacy of the son of David. How how will this glorious hope be realized in the future? Will men accomplish this? Will men do this? Will Christianity, will will its influence just grow and grow and grow and fill up the heavens so that Messiah can just kind of step off into into the, the new heavens and the new earth? No. That's not it at all. End of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is going to be God's work. It will be unmistakably God's work. And before it is realized, there will be a purifying judgment like the world has never seen before and will never see again, as Jesus says in Matthew 25. And when it's complete, the smoke of those whom God judges, Revelation 19 says, will rise up forever and ever. This is an eternal judgment. He's quoting Isaiah in Revelation, by the way. Chapter 34 and verse 10. No man... No church, no political system, no effort of our own will ever accomplish what God must do and will do. His zeal, his commitment, that's what the word zeal implies there. His commitment to his word will accomplish this. And who is this gift of a child, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this eternal father and prince of peace? It's, of course, none other than the Lord Jesus himself. It's Christ. Matthew 1, verse 21. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this, he said, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The New Testament tells us how this prophecy is fulfilled. And that child lived and he died in the place of sinners and he rose from the grave on the third day and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the scriptures tell us he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And those who are his children are those who walk by faith in his promise of his finished work, trusting in his word and obeying that word. They're not like faithless Ahaz. They're not like faithless Judah who trusted in their own human efforts and earthly wisdom. They wait on the Lord and they look eagerly for him. And as a faithful remnant, they are able to share in this glorious and eternal kingdom that's described here in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9. Only they will walk in the light and participate in the unspeakable joy that is the new heavens and the new earth. And so we end where we began. Death does not have the final word. God's purposes will be accomplished. It's fitting, I think, that Peter quotes these verses in chapter 8 because this is what we are to do. If you go to 1 Peter 3, he, he, he says we are to above all, be harmonious, sympathetic, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing. And he says, who is there to harm you if you uh, prove zealous for what is good? In other words, if you trust me against all odds and obey my word, who's going to ultimately hurt you? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then he quotes Isaiah 8, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Don't, don't give in to the fear of the world. But what? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you to give an account of the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. We go on trusting God, preaching his word, proclaiming the gospel, setting apart Christ as Lord. And we experience the joy and the promise that the hope that Isaiah lays out will indeed belong to us as well. Next week, copy, paste. <laughs> sort of. But, he, but it's not just a direct copy and paste. The outline is the same, but in, in any senses, he expands. Isaiah does this throughout the book where he'll say something once and then he'll follow it up with something that sounds very similar. But the second one is an expansion and elaboration of the first. So we're going to learn even more about these realities next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, just the, the richness and the vividness and the imagery that Isaiah gives us. Um, so much uh, powerful language here, so much that we don't fully appreciate at times because we're so far removed from that context historically. We're so unfamiliar with the, uh, re the, the kind of movements of things in the background. Uh, we thank you that your word has been preserved and handed down to us so that we can know these things and understand them. And we thank you for the New Testament, which even sheds greater light on the fulfillment of your promises. We know that you're a God. You, you, you can be taken at your word. I, I wish we understood that more. Forgive us that we don't trust you like we ought. Lord, help us to be like Isaiah in this remnant 
holding fast to your word, binding in the testimony, sealing the instruction upon our hearts so that we might walk worthy. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. And as we come to the Lord's table, we reaffirm that commitment to you even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.